Well, good morning. And uh, firstly, congratulations for choosing this seminar. Um, if you are on holiday and have chosen to come to New Horizon, uh, to come to a seminar on giving out of all the other ones that you could have gone to, this is hardcore. Um, and uh, I hope it will be helpful to you. Um, and um, just to say that um, if you will have a time for questions uh, at least at least once, if not twice, during uh, the course of the next hour. Um, and uh, if I repeat the questions, it's for the recording. It's not because um, you have phrased the question badly. Um, I have to repeat it for the microphone so that they can pick it up on the recording. Um, the whole subject of, of money and of giving is, is one that, if we're honest, we're often very nervous about in church. Um, and for some reason, that's why they said, you know, what title shall we give uh, the seminar? I said, well, let's call it the gift that cannot be named. Uh, because it's often something that as Christians, that we, we shrink back from speaking about. And uh, as hopefully we'll see in a few minutes, um, that wasn't the attitude that Jesus had. And isn't also the attitude that we see reflected throughout Scripture. Um, so what I want to do is speak for about 20 minutes to the first page of the handout and look at a theology of giving. And then on the flip side, on the reverse side, is how we can communicate uh, about the gift of giving and about financial needs uh, in churches and in charities, etc. And, and a lot of that will be coming from my own experience, as Ruth has mentioned. Um, I, I said to God, um, just before I got ordained uh, into the Anglican Church, Lord, I will get ordained as long as one thing happens, as long as I never have to do a building project. And uh, God, having a sense of humor, uh, decided that I would do my curacy uh, in a church that had just begun a building project uh, and was raising £750,000 uh, for a new church hall that was built in our garden. Um, but I'm not bitter. Uh, 25 years later, I've got over it. Um, and, and they raised all the money uh, for that. And imagine my delight when after being at Peace and G's in Edinburgh for about uh, three years, I realized that we were going to have to do a building project. Um, and so that's where this is coming from. Um, you're seeing uh, somebody in front of you who has, has been in the trenches uh, on this particular issue and learned a lot uh, about the whole issue of money and uh, about the gift of giving. So a theology of giving. And, 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 and what I would love to do is, is speak for about 20 minutes, um, which most people who, who've heard me speak, yeah, um, in, in, in Scots, uh, they're able to have two affirmatives that mean a negative. Um, they say, I, right. That means no. Um, and most people who, who hear me say, I'm going to speak for 20 minutes, go, yeah, well, that probably means at least 40. Um, but I'll try and keep it to 20 and run through very quickly an overview of giving um, and then take some questions because I want this to be as, as helpful and as useful for you as possible. And then we'll run through some lessons about communication of giving. And again, if there are particular things, I know at least one person already who's here uh, because their church is doing a building project and they want to pick up some tips, um, then either we can answer questions now or I'll give you my email address at the end of the seminar and uh, you can email questions. And one of the reasons for that is when we were doing our building project, we approached other churches uh, for help who had done building projects. And some were really, really helpful. And some were not very helpful. 
And we made a decision there and then that whenever a church asked us for help, we would give them as much help as we could. So it's my commitment to you, if you're about to do a building project or in the midst of a building project or would like help in this issue, um, I'm committed to helping you um, as much as I can. And, and there are resources that we can point you in the direction of, uh, materials that we presented that other churches have taken what we uh, did and they've improved it. And the reason that we did that is because we took what other churches did and we improved what they did and we copied it and we passed it off as our own. Um, and you have absolute permission to do that with any stuff that we produced at, at P's and G's. So, uh, a theology of giving. The basic uh, principle, number one, is to look at Scripture and to see that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So everything that we see around us actually belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And the real point of looking at the gift of giving and beginning to change in the way in which we think about money in particular and material things is that it's not a question of how much we give. Actually, the more important question is how much do we get to keep? That is the much bigger question and more important question. Um, and that's the fundamental question. If you realize and appreciate that God is the owner of everything in the world, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and as human beings, particularly as Christians, we are given stewardship over the things of God, and he entrusts to us how we are to use and steward both creation itself and, and everything in creation, then that begins to shape the way in which we think about money. Uh, Dr. Joseph Stoll, who was for many years um, the president of the Moody Bible Institute, he said the real point of materialism is not how much we have, but what has us. It's not what we hold, but how tightly we hold it. Not what we have, but how we got it. Now, one of the reasons this is challenging is because we live in a culture and in a society that thinks very differently about money and thinks very differently about material things. That actually it's about how much you can get. And how much you get and how much you earn is an indication of how important you are. Now what does Jesus teach? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, Jesus uses this picture of when we give. And he uses the word when, he doesn't use the word if. He uses the word when, he doesn't use the word if. And he contrasts the giving and the attitude that he wants his followers to have at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, as he's speaking to his 12 followers with about probably three or 4,000 people eavesdropping in, listening in to what Jesus is saying to his 12 disciples, he begins to teach them that the ethics of the kingdom of God are different to those that they have experienced thus far. So firstly, he says, don't show off. Don't be like the, the hypocrites. Don't be like the Pharisees who like to show off when they give. So don't show off. Second, and part of that, verse 2, he says, don't have trumpets. So don't make a big show of your giving. He says, verses 3 and 4, give discreetly. And, and this is a key verse for understanding uh, the Sermon on the Mount. 
um, he says, your giving should, or your righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees. And the key verse to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is that phrase, do not be like them. Do not be like them. And so all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is making this contrast between the life in the kingdom of God that he has come to inaugurate with the, 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 the righteousness of the Pharisees. And he's saying to his followers, his 12 friends, do not be like them. And this goes to the heart of what people often focus on when we start to talk about money. And they get very stuck on this issue of tithing. And people say, well, should Christians tithe or not? Do you belong to a church that teaches tithing or not? Um, so I've got some friends who go to a really good church uh, in Edinburgh. It's a large church. It's growing. It's planting. And they teach absolutely tithing right from the beginning that the Christian should give 10% of their income to the church. They then get into very interesting discussions as to whether that should be before tax or after tax. And they have, I've been in some of those discussions at P's and G's as to whether tithing is actually about before or after tax. The thing that blows that apart is when you actually look in the Old Testament at what people gave under the Old Covenant. The temple tithe was 10% of your income before tax. The festival tithe, which a faithful Jew would give, was another 10% before tax. Every three years, a faithful Jew was required to give a tithe for the poor every three years that was another 3%. If in the course of your business you made any profit, you would also be expected to give 2% of that to the temple. So the faithful, obedient, righteous Jew would be giving on average between 23 and 25% of their income to the temple. So whatever you may have been taught in the past about tithing equaling 10%, forget it. Because the tithe was never meant to be a ceiling. The tithe of 10% was always meant to be the floor. It was always meant to be the bare minimum. So you see immediately that what Jesus is saying to his followers, do not be like them. Your righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees. He's saying to his followers, the ethics of the kingdom of God are different. The attitudes in the kingdom of God are different. It's not about meeting the, the, the minimum basic requirements. It's about having a very different attitude to the things of God and particularly towards money. And as I began to study this particular subject, as my mind was focused, as we began planning for this building project, I started to read different books. I started to read the Bible in a different way. And realized that actually Jesus spoke more about money than anything else. There are at least over 2,000 verses in the Bible about money. And two-thirds of the parables of Jesus address the topic of money and how money should be used. 
So Jesus, for example, speaks more about the power and use of money than sex. But you would not know that for what we talk about in church. He actually spoke more about money than he did about heaven and he did about hell. Again, you would not know that if you listen to most sermons in churches. So I'd just be interested now, um, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on money? Not on giving, but on money. You just raise your hand. Okay, some of you are going, yeah, I think I heard once one somewhere-ish. Now that's quite telling. Now part of the reason for that, and we need to be honest about this, is that preachers, ministers, church leaders are sometimes reluctant to speak on the subject of money because they feel compromised because it sounds as though they're asking for money for themselves. So in the Episcopal Church in Scotland, for example, each uh, congregation has to raise their own minister's stipend. If you can't pay for a minister's stipend or salary, you don't get a full-time minister in the, the Anglican Church in Scotland. That means, therefore, that if you're clergy like me, to be preaching about money to a congregation that is responsible for paying you, it sounds as though you are asking for your own salary. So to preach about money can be quite problematic for some people. But Jesus spoke about money and the power of money and the use of money more than anything else. If you just take a small section of Luke's Gospel, um, Luke 18 through to Luke 21, you see there in Luke 18 verses 9 to 14, the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector. Luke 18 verses 18 to 30, the rich young ruler. Luke 19 verses 1 to 10, the encounter with Zacchaeus. Luke 19 verses 11 to 27, the parable of the ten minus or talents. Luke 19 verses 45 to 48, the clearing of the temple and the overthrowing of the moneylenders' tables. Luke 20 verses 9 to 19, the parable of the tenants. Luke 20 verses 20 to 26, paying taxes to Caesar. And Luke 20 21 verses 1 to 4, the widow's offering. So two random chapters, three random chapters, that's inflation for you, uh, three random chapters in Luke's gospel, Jesus is addressing the subject of money. But often we look at those parables and, and we think, oh, he's, he's talking about something spiritual. Well, actually he is, but not in the way that we've traditionally interpreted it. Because he's talking about money and the power of money. And money is a spiritual issue. Money has a spiritual power. Money is as spiritual as prayer or evangelism or international mission or youth work or children's work or worship. In fact, money, how we use money, is part of our worship. But what's happened in the Western church, in, in, in the evangelical church, is that we think that, that Jesus is interested in the spiritual part of life. So there's the spiritual part of our life over here that's about prayer and Bible study and church and stuff. And then there's the rest of life. Well, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness. And Jesus doesn't make any division at all between different compartments of life. So Jesus is as interested in what you do in your work or in your leisure as he is what you do in your church. In fact, he's probably more interested in what you do at the workplace or in your leisure than he is what you do in your church. 
and the how we think about and how we use money is part of that. This quotation from Daryl Bock, money has many characteristics of a deity. It can give us security, it can induce guilt, it can give us freedom, and it can seem to be omnipresent. But most sinister of all is its bid for omnipotence. And again, if you look at our culture, if you look at our society, it's dominated by money. And it's dominated by our attitudes towards money. And where we sit on the money tree will indicate how we think about ourselves and how we think about other people. Now, the early church were characterized by their generosity. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. A salutary tale about Ananias and Sapphira who refused to take the offering seriously and God did not have a very high view of them as a result. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 11, uh, where Paul writes to that church and says that God loves a cheerful, literally God loves a hilarious giver. God loves a cheerful or hilarious giver. And, and many churches in the Afro-African uh, church or the Afro-Caribbean church can teach us things when it comes to attitudes towards money. Um, so if you go into some Pentecostal Afro-American or Afro-Caribbean churches um, in Britain, uh, they come to the offering and people stand up and cheer. Now, I lead an Anglican church. People do not cheer when we announce the offering. In lots of Pentecostal Afro-Caribbean churches, they will take an offering, and if it's not enough, they will take another one. At the same time, they will say to people, if you're in need today, rather than putting into the baskets, we would encourage you to take out of the baskets. They have a completely different attitude because their framework is governed by the idea that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It isn't a health and wealth thing that the more you give, the more you will receive. That's a, a wholly false interpretation of Scripture. That's not what this is about. But the idea that if you understand that everything that you have belongs to God... And what is at stake is what you get to keep, not how much you get to give. Then fundamentally everything in your life and everything in your mind begins to change. It's summed up in that verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 to 10 where Paul quoting Jesus says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's a distinction made. Money of itself is neutral. It can be used for good and it can be used for bad. But if you love money and the pursuit of money, it will very quickly take over your life. And as that, that quote from Daryl Bock uh, reminds us, that it has many of the characteristics of a deity. One of the early church fathers, St. John of Chrysostom, said, Riches are not forbidden, but the price of them is. Riches are not forbidden, but the price of them is. And as I say, this is very difficult for us because of the culture that we live in. 
Um, one uh, sociologist, Oliver James, has, has written a book uh, called The Disease of Affluenza. Because we live in a very, very affluent society. Um, I don't know about you. Have you been troubled by this fly um, that's been going around? I must tell you, Saturday evening, I had a really funny moment um, during the prayer ministry time. Um, we were invited, for those of you who weren't here on Saturday evening, we were just inviting the Holy Spirit to come after the talk. Um, many people were praying during the talk that the Holy Spirit would come quickly. Um, but this... We were just inviting the Holy Spirit and just waiting upon God. And uh, all of a sudden, I got this funny sort of twitch um, around my stomach. Now, I'm, I'm a charismatic Christian. In fact, all Christians are charismatic, whether you like it or not. But well, that's a whole different subject. Um, we'll turn into that tonight. Um, and I, I thought, well, maybe this is a word of knowledge, that somebody has something wrong uh, with their stomach. And, and this is just a physical manifestation that God wants me to share uh, with the tent uh, and then I realized that because it was so erratic, it probably wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was actually a fly. Uh, and a fly had got underneath my shirt. And, and so in a liturgical response, because I'm an Anglican, I raised my hands to enable my shirt to come up slightly. And uh, I lifted the flap of my shirt and this fly came out. Um, so if you are bothered by a fly this morning, you are in good company because I know what that feels like. Only to me... It happened in front of two and a half thousand people. Um, back to the subject of giving and money. The culture that we live in, um, Oliver James, this sociologist, has said, the, is obsessed with this increase, envious, and keeping up with the Joneses. And there, it's based on these three myths that are prevalent in our society. Number one, things bring happiness. So the more things you have, the happier you are. And particularly in the last 10 or 20 years, um, things have built in obsolescence. So phones are built not to last very long. Um, laptop computers after about three or four years. Basically, whatever you, you buy technology-wise, you have to accept from the moment that you buy it, it is out of date. It is old-fashioned. And things are sold to us on the idea, not that they're better, but that they're newer. Because in our minds, newer equals better. And funnily enough, newer always means more expensive. So that's the, the thing, the myth at the heart of our culture, and some would say, indeed, at the heart of our economy. The second myth that's come about in the last 20, 30 years is that debt is unexpected and debt is unavoidable. So some of you will have seen Josh um, because of his eyebrows, recognizing him as my son. Um, and he has come out after university with £43,000 worth of student debt. Now to my generation, that would be unthinkable. I was given a grant to go to university. I was paid to go to university. Josh had to pay and will be paying off that debt probably for the rest of his life. Actually, it's his intention to go into the ordained ministry and therefore never have to earn enough uh, to repay that student debt. Um, but today's generation will just accept um, that debt is unavoidable. My generation, um, the icon, if you like, um, and again, this will divide the room immediately. Um, I remember my mum taking me uh, to uh, the TSB when I was four or five years of age 
and and uh, opening a savings account. And and I've still got the book somewhere. And every week I had to put you know the equivalent of fifty p into that savings account. The icon of today's society is the credit card. It's instant. And most of us are, ba- are sort of bombarded with e- mailings or emails from credit companies, from credit companies with whom we have a credit card already offering us a better deal. So the expectation is not of saving up for something, but just borrowing money so that you might have what you want now. And the third myth of our culture and our society is that a little more money will solve all your problems. Somebody once asked Rockefeller, who was a multi-multi-millionaire, how much was enough? And Rockefeller replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And there's this myth that just a little bit more. Sometimes um, I occasionally just sort of... um, dream of what I would need just to be comfortable. So a new car, because my car's about 10, 12 years old. Um, maybe to be able to, to, to buy a house at some point in the future. Um, I think I, I stop usually when I get to about a million. Because I think I'll be comfortable with a million. Just a little bit more. It's a lie. Because actually, even if I had a million pounds, I'd still be stuck with me. I wouldn't necessarily be uh, happier than I am now. Dr. Lee Salk said that people in our society jockey to find out what each other earns. Because in our society, money is a symbol of strength, influence and power. So you would be comfortable, perhaps, even as Northern Irish Christians, who have a particular cultural baggage... And a reluctance, I am told, to share things with each other. But you would be comfortable sharing some things with the person on your left or your right. Just turn and look at them now. And imagine that I asked you to share something about yourself. Maybe where you live, maybe what church you go to, maybe what your favorite color is, your television program, um, etc., etc. What your favorite flavor of ice cream is. I would guess that many of you would feel comfortable turning to the person next to you now. I'm not going to ask you to do it, don't worry. But telling them how much you earn. Because in our society, telling the person who is next to us how much we earn will mean that immediately we categorize that person. We categorize them in terms of status and we categorize them in terms of value. Because what you're paid seems to imply your value and your worth. Um, this was seen most vividly for me uh, at P's and G's. We had a church weekend away about um, uh, 14 years ago. Um, uh, and Mark Green had just become uh, the executive director of LICC. And we got him to come and speak about Christianity in the workplace, the, the seminar stream that Charles uh, is doing. And um, on the Sunday morning, he, he asked people to get into small groups depending on what job they did. Now, this was after uh, 36 hours of him teaching on a the theology of work. It took us 15 minutes to get people to be willing to go into groups where they were meeting with people who 
were either lawyers or doctors or uh, plumbers or school teachers or whatever job or profession they would do because they didn't want to be perceived by other people in church by what job they did because church was a place where they could be anonymous and it, it took us about 15 minutes I mean just to sort the NHS group by themselves took ages you know, the surgeons refused to be with anybody else. They wanted their own group. Um, the physios wanted their own group. The nurses wanted their own group. Um, and it, it's because of the way in which our culture thinks about work and thinks about jobs and thinks about money. Because we put people and we value people uh, by the money that they earn. And giving, well, on one level, it is still countercultural. But the reality is that for all the recession that we've had in the last uh, nine, ten years, people still live to get, love to give. So you watch Children in Need or you watch Red Nose Day and the figures for giving have gone up and up and up and up during what we're told is the worst recession since the Second World War. But people still love to give. People still love to give. And the money is still there. And people still love to give. So what does the Bible teach about the gift of giving very quickly? Well, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 8, the gift of giving is specified as a spiritual gift. Now, along with voluntary martyrdom, poverty and celibacy, it is probably one of the most unpopular gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, people say, I'd like God to give me the gift of speaking in tongues or evangelism or faith or healing. Um, I don't think I've ever had somebody come forward in prayer ministry and I said, well, what do you think God's saying to you? I think he's, he's asking that I, he should give me the gift of giving. No one has ever, in 30 years, 35 years of ministry, no one has ever asked me for that. But Paul outlines it as a particular gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's a bit like this. All of us are called to be witnesses to Jesus. All of us are called to share our faith. Some people have the gift of evangelism, where they are particularly effective at sharing their faith. All of us are called to give. But some people have the gift of giving. And the best, and again, I'll say more about this uh, course this evening. Uh, the best course that I've discovered to help people find out what their spiritual gifts are is called the Network Course uh, from Willow Creek in Chicago. And 22 years I came across this course, and we, we're still using it uh, because I can't find one that's better. Uh, this is the definition that it gives to the gift of giving. The divine enablement to contribute money and resources to the work of God with cheerfulness and freedom. People with this gift don't ask how much money do I need to give to God, but rather ask how much money do I need to live on. The various strengths, such people will be stewardship orientated, responsible, resourceful, charitable and disciplined. Some cautions. We need to value all the gifts of the Spirit. That remember that the church's agenda is decided by the leadership, not people who have the gift of giving. So we don't have, de in my church, we don't have designated giving. People can't come to me and say, I will give you X if you do, dot, dot, dot. Which some ha happens in some churches. Um, 
People who have the gift of giving need to recognize that it's not their gift or desires and need to guard against greed or expecting preferential treatment uh, because they have the gift of giving. So that's a very quick, broad overview um, of a theology of giving. So before we get into the practicalities and run through uh, that very quickly, uh, any immediate thoughts, questions that people uh, might want to have uh, just on that? Okay, I'll repeat it for the, the recording. Um, the question is about um, the, the responsibility for stewarding the gifts that are given. Who decides uh, how what is given is then used? Um, for me, I think that comes down to the leadership of the church. So, um, uh, and again, we'll have different structures of leadership. Some of you will be Presbyterian, some of you will be Baptist, some of you might be Anglican, some of you might be Vineyard, some of you might be Free Church, some, I don't, Methodist, whatever. And we'll all therefore have different leadership structures. But for me, it, it, it has to be determined by the leadership group. And I think it should be a group. Um, the New Testament speaks about a plurality of leadership, not one person, uh, but a plurality of leadership deciding on what they think uh, God is calling them to do and be as a church and then stewarding those resources that have been given. Um, so we would decide we have an, a, a budget, um, but as I say in a minute, your budget, your annual church budget is a theological statement because you're saying what you think is important for your church to do. So if your budget for children's work is 5% of your annual budget, you're saying that your children's work is that important in the overall scheme of things. If your evangelism budget is 50%, and I would be amazed if it is, you're saying that that is important to you as a church. Because what you put value against in your budget will indicate the importance that you attach to it. So I think it needs to be decided by the leadership um, and then offered to the church. This is what we would like to do this year. And we're only able to do that because you give. So please give. And as we'll see in a minute, people give to vision. And when people can see a vision, they can see why they're giving, then they will give. When people know that there's a need, they will give. If they don't know there's a need, they won't give. So that's that one. Any other questions on this? Yes, in the back, yep. Uh, the Charities Commission are a great friend. So in Scotland we have Oscar, um, and uh, all Episcopal churches, for example, are registered charities. Um, we have rules that we have to follow. Um, and um, I think it's been really helpful. There were some um, really, really unhelpful charities in Scotland, speaking about the Scottish context, um, and they were one of the reasons that the, um, the OSCA, the Charities Commissions in Scotland, came into being, because people weren't using the money for the purposes for which it had been, has been raised. Um, so actually, we find it very helpful. Um, they're very helpful in terms of advice. Uh, they're very helpful in terms of giving focus. Um, and um, as has been mentioned, I'm on the board of, of the UK Board of World Vision uh, that has about a budget of about 95 million, um, just as the UK charity. And again, um, 
it's they can be slightly picky at times, um, but in terms of fraud, they've been really, really helpful, making sure that the money that's given is then used for the purposes for which it has been given. So we find them very helpful. Okay, the question is about the um, the tension sometimes between giving to churches and giving to charities, and the charities and an increasing number of charities uh, will always have need, and how do you ha handle that tension? Um, I would. I mean, you might say, you will say this, Dave. Um, I think the, the primary uh, place of giving should be to the church. And then it's for the church to give to charities. Um, again, I believe passionately in the local church. Bill Heibel says the local church is the hope of the world. If the church was being the church, close your ears to this, Ruth. If the church was being the church, there wouldn't be any need for parachurch organizations. Parachurch organizations have come into existence because the Church of Jesus Christ is not being the Church of Jesus Christ. So all that exhibition space and resource area wouldn't be needed if the Church of Jesus Christ was being the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm on the board of World Vision. Um, so obviously there is a need for some charities to do things like IJM that we'll be talking about tomorrow who can do specific things in specific areas for a specific reason and therefore they will need expertise and resourcing. And I think what we do as a church is, for example, we partner with Tier Fund, we partner with IJM and we partner with World Vision as well as supporting missionaries that have gone out from our church. But we partner with organizations that share our values, that share our vision and that are consistent with who we are as a church. So we won't give to a charity that doesn't support our vision and values and we can't support theirs. So it's a mutual thing. Um, again, as we'll get into the practicalities of this. Um, the problem is not, be careful what I say, the problem is not that most Christians are giving too much to other charities. The problem is that most Christians are not giving enough to anything. But they're certainly not giving enough to the local church. If churches, if Christians gave the bare minimum 10%, never mind what a righteous Jew at 25% gave, there would be no financial need in any church in Northern Ireland. There would be an abundance. Now sometimes, yeah, I do get frustrated. And if I'm honest, I need to be very careful what I say here. I struggle with some organizations, Christian charities, who seem to me to trade on fear to induce fundraising and giving. And I think that some Christian organizations, I don't agree with the way in which they go about fundraising. Um, and I'd far rather that money went to the local church because the local church could do far more good with it. Is that helpful? If I cross too many lines, people may take me outside and beat me up later. Um, um, I, I, I'm, I can't say a percentage of what people should give. God will give different people uh, different um, guidelines as to what you should give uh, to whom. Um, I would suggest, however, that the majority of what you give should go to the local church. Um, and then after that, give. Because if your local church is giving itself responsibly, then it should be also giving away some of the money. Um, 
So if you, f if you flip over, we'll come on to the practicalities of giving. Um, and why do people give? Um, firstly, people give if leaders talk about it. So if leaders never talk about giving and never talk about money, Christians won't give. Uh, for me, uh, the penny dropped, literally. Um, I was uh, on a, a mentoring week over in Chicago at Willow Creek, and Bill Hybels was with about 50 of us uh, from around the world. And he, he asked a simple question after coffee. He said, how many of you in your churches need more money? And 50 hands went straight up. And he said, okay, second question. How many of you uh, preach and teach about money and giving? Not a single hand went up. And he said, that's your problem. There's a link between the two. If you don't teach about it, people won't give. Whatever you, if you're a local church leader, whatever you teach about, whatever you lean into, whatever you give time to, that will move. And so I started to think about how I could teach about giving. And one of the things that we quickly realized is that Christians, just like the rest of our culture and society, are clueless about the area of money. So as we were putting our new five-year plan together in 1999, um, I think it, included, it did include this paragraph. Um, we will take seriously the implications of outreach for our present buildings. We think we might have to remove some of the pews, develop the exterior to provide a, a warmer, more welcoming, and more attractive introduction. We want to uh, uh, enable inquirers to feel more welcome and the building more, be more accessible. Now, we never dreamt that that was going to mean a 6.9 million building project. Um, but we're very quickly, as we started to talk about money and the prospect of going into, a, um, the Americans call it a capital campaign or a building project to raise money, um, realized that when we started to talking to church members, they were clueless about money. Most Christians, money comes in at the start of the month for most of us, if we earn a salary. At the end of the month, that money has somehow disappeared from our bank accounts. And most of us are clueless as to how that's happened. Most of us think, perhaps, that some of us may be involved and implicated in some of that money disappearing. We're absolutely sure that members of our family are involved and implicated in that money disappearing, particularly if we have children, particularly if we have teenage children. But somehow we haven't thought through that we're actually in control of our money. Our money seems to be in control of us. So one of the first things that we did was realize that we needed to speak and teach about money. So we did a, um, a, a three-month teaching series on Richard Foster's book, Money, Sex and Power. And we did six weeks on money as a sermon series. This was a year before the first gift day. Only one of those six weeks was actually on giving. The other five were on what the Bible teaches about money and attitudes towards money. And during the course of that uh, teaching series, one of the things we realized we had to do was enable people to, to, to plan a budget. So we had people in the church who were working for financial institutions. People who, I mean, Edinburgh, you know, is, was based on Standard Life and RBS and HBOS. Um, and these people worked for banks. They were clueless about having a personal budget. Money came in at the start of the month and money was gone by the end. It may explain what happened to RBS, but we won't go there. Um, 
So we just gave people a, a budget. And we said, what are your incomings? And what are your outgoings? And therefore, what does that enable you to realize that you can give? Something else that was quite important was that I asked uh, for the top 10 givers um, in the church. I, just, I didn't want to know how much they gave, but I simply wanted to know their names. Now, again, traditionally, um, church leaders, clergy, ministers are told you can't know who gives and what they give. Because you might start treating people differently if they're high givers. Um, American evangelical Christians, people like Bill Hybels, just thinks this is bonkers. And, and you should know um, what people give. Um, you don't treat them differently because of it, but you, you, you should know. Um, I simply asked for the, ten top, the names of the top ten givers. I didn't want to know what they gave. I discovered that we... As a, as a married couple, as a family, we were in the top eight. And we were clergy. So I knew what we gave. Now, my wife is a clinical psychologist. She's kept me as long as we've been married. When we got to that bit in the service, all that I am, I give to you, all that I have, I share with you. She just looked at me and laughed um, for many reasons. Um, so she's always earned more than I will and always will. Um, but we knew what we gave and we came in number eight. Clergy are invariably in the top 10 givers in their church because they're committed to what they're doing. But unless they've got a spouse who is earning far more, the sobering reality is that clergy are in the top 10 givers in their church on a clergy stipend. And they're still in the top 10 givers. So what that did for me was release in me permission to go for my congregation because I knew that they weren't giving and we were a fair, we are we had to have some very wealthy people in, in our congregation we've got some very poor people as well but we've got some very wealthy people and I thought well if I'm coming in at number eight and I know what we give that therefore gives me a realistic expectation of what other people are giving and it gave me permission to go for it so um the second or the third is if leaders set an example. Again, clergy will have to give. Um, but before our, um, uh, about a month before our first pledge day, uh, we, as in, in the Episcopal Church in Scotland, um, it's called the vestry, that is the, the sort of lay leadership. And together with the clergy team, we had our own pledge night. Now, together as, as the leaders of the church, we pledged a million pounds. Now, that was so encouraging, but it was also so challenging for the rest of the church because they knew that 15 people had given a million. And therefore, the challenge to them was, well, what are you going to give? Very quickly moving on. Um, leaders know the reality. People need to be envisioned. If people think they're giving to bricks and mortar, you're dead in the water. So I had to dis decide how I could communicate in as many ways as I could the difference that the money would make, telling stories. So we undertook a three to four year process of uh, selling people the vision of this building project. Um, and we had to be realistic. Um, the first publicity material that was produced, I had to go back to the couple who had produced it, and it was it was a, a lovely, it was beautiful, 
really well thought out. And I had to ask them to do two things. Uh, one was to add at least one, if not two, if not three noughts to every single figure that they had put in that document. Because they said, well, if, if a couple gives £10 a month, and I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, at that stage, I think the, the total was £4.3 million. Um, I said, we're not going to get £4.3 million if you're asking people to give £10 a month. So we need to ask couples to think about giving £100 a month or £1,000 a month. So you need to put some noughts that aren't there at the moment. And the second thing was to get away from an idea that I'd been brought up with. So some of the churches that I'd worked in before, um, their leaders had said, okay, here's a need. The need is a quarter of a million pounds, 250,000. So that means that we have uh, 200 people in the church. So we'll divide the 250,000 by 200. That equals how much? You've got five minutes left. I thought you were using five. Five pounds each? That's not very much. Um, <laughs> um, well, it is whatever it is. So you take the, the total, 250,000, divide it by 200, and you therefore get an average figure of what people should give. And what somebody said very wisely to me is, don't do that. Because that does two things. Firstly, the people who can't give the average amount don't give anything. The people who could give much more than the average amount, they just give the bare minimum, the average amount. So you ask them for £500, they could have given you 50000 But they give you the 500 and they've done their bit. So, picking out some highlights because we are rushed for time. Um, Distinguish between generous and sacrificial giving. It isn't the same. All are equally important. We had children giving £1 a week, uh, pensioners giving £10 per week. That was more sacrificial than a multimillionaire who gave us well over 100000 It was very generous of him to give us 100000 but it was not sacrificial. And we learnt the difference between sacrificial and generous giving. Um, Understand it's a spiritual journey, not a capital campaign. Uh, We had the the former Bishop of Chester, Michael Bourne, come to preach. And he said this really encouraging statement at the start. He said, you will never have enough money to begin. You will never have enough money in the middle. And you will not have enough money at the end. If you did, it wouldn't be a journey of faith. And sadly, he was absolutely right. And 10 years later, we've still got £200,000 to pay off. But we grew as a church. And our general fund budget in 2001 was £350,000. This year, our general fund budget was £950,000. And we also gave away over 28% of our income to mission. uh, Well over £75,000 as well in our quota. So what happened is that as we started to learn to give, and we had a pledge day the first year, and the the church pledged £2.1 million. We had a pledge day two years later, they pledged £2.8 million. And uh, they've given, as I say, £6.7 million uh, to the building project, while at the same time, um, giving to our general fund has gone up. So people learnt how to give in more realistic ways. Um, And it's transformed what we do as a church. So we're able to feed 100 homeless people every Saturday. Uh, We give them a... uh, We just started a church plant on the back of that. 
um, soul food, our ministry for people who are homeless. Uh, we give them a three-course banquet every Saturday. We feed at least 100 homeless people um, in our building. Um, we have uh, babies and toddlers with 400 on a Thursday. Um, it's got the reputation now of being the best babies and toddler group in Edinburgh. Uh, for Edinburgh under fives, they recommend people to come to our babies and toddler group. We're able to do so much more things as a church because people gave. And because in the act of giving, people learn to give of themselves. So, I've probably said enough. Very quick time for questions that people might have. Yes? Should a church ever borrow money? Um, we did. We had a loan facility for 1.8 million. Uh, in the end, we only borrowed 1.1 million um, because the church had given more than we thought they would give. Um, and over whatever it is, uh, seven years, uh, we've paid down uh, 900,000 of that 1.1 million loan. Um, I mean, if you have a mortgage, we, we, we would have mortgages on our church properties. Um, so the th three out of the four houses that we own, we have mortgages on those as well. Um, and for us, it's, it's been a, we've, I mean, doing this, you know, 6.9 million building project, I was just so grateful that we did it before 2008. So we did it just before the recession. And we also borrowed money at the time when interest rates have been at their lowest. So God has been very, very kind to us. Um, but I would say sensibly and proportionally, yes, it's absolutely right and okay for a church to borrow money. Any other questions that people might have? No? Okay, well, if, if you have some questions or want to come and find me either now or, or during the course of the next two or three days then please feel free to do so um, I'd love to pray for you um, before we go and uh, just commit all that we've uh, talked about this morning back to God Father thank you that everything that we have belongs to you whether it's a lot or whether it's a little we just recognize that everything comes from you that you are a God who gives good gifts to his children and father for those of us who've been entrusted with a lot then lord would you help us to use that and steward it wisely and well to be generous to be sacrificial and to support the work of your kingdom in the different ways whether it's through the local church or through ch charities or parachurch organizations as you lead us Father, for those of us, if we're honest, who in human terms have not got very much, help us to use what you have given to us well also. But we recognize this morning that for each of us, whether we have much or whether we have little, one day we will be required to give an account of what we have done with what you have given to us. And we simply pray that on that day, you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord because we have used the resources that you've entrusted to us for the extension of your kingdom and the building up of your church that more people might hear about Jesus, experience his love and his care and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.